Let's have some fun in the book of John, if you will, okay? Go ahead and open to John chapter 21 with me. It's the last chapter, and we've been in John for uh, several months. Not that I'm counting, but I think it's like 18 months, something like that. Uh, I'm really not counting. It's something along those lines. But this is, I, I, I am counting how many messages. This is number 76 in the book of John, so just do the math on how many weeks there are in a year and you get there. So anyway, man, I'm so glad uh, that we're winding this thing down, but I'm really more glad for the ways that God has stirred our hearts while we've been in John. And so today we find ourselves in the 21st chapter. We'll look at the first half of it today and then the second half next week, and we will be finished with it. Uh, as you're getting there, you know, I've mentioned the last two weeks uh, pieces of media that kind of get us in the the, the literary context of where we are in the passage. I mentioned uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air two weeks ago uh, because it, it mentions a prologue and then a restatement of the theme of the prologue at the end. I mentioned Ferris Bueller's Day Off last week, which is, again is just a wonderful movie. It's a special place in my mind, but uh, I love Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but there's a, a, that, that restatement of the prologue in that as well, sort of a thesis statement at the end of the, of the movie. By the way, I, I was going to mention Ferris Bueller's Day Off again today because it actually has an episode at the end, and chapter 21 of John is an epilogue, but instead, I wanted to mention a movie that doesn't have an epilogue that I wish did. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Truman Show. Do you guys, have you ever seen the movie The Truman Show? It's a movie starring uh, Jim Carrey, and it's not a comedy, it's, it's more of a, a drama. It's a real serious tone movie, but The Truman Show was really before the reality TV explosion, which, can we just talk about the irony of something that reality, called, reality TV is actually called reality TV. Is there anything more pretend than reality TV? Uh, just more of my stand-up material. I won't go into it. Uh, but it's, it's right before the reality TV explosion really happened. But the, the theme of this movie is that it's about a, about a man named Truman. Um, he was adopted from birth by, not a family, but by a corporation, which I'm pretty sure is illegal. But, you know, it's a fantasy world. So anyway, he was uh, adopted from birth by a corporation and raised in a simulated TV show existence. It's a big dome where they simulated everything around him. Everything that happened in his day was simulated, and he was the star of the show, and hidden cameras everywhere, microphones everywhere. And so it was the Truman Show, and they literally watched him on TV uh, from his birthday, literally when he was born, all the way up until he was in his 30s or however long the movie is, uh, whenever, whatever age he is. So in the movie... He's unaware that all these cameras are on him. They're all hidden, and uh, sort of the, the tone of the movie is that as you're following him through his life, he starts to become a little self-aware. Some weird things are happening, and he's hearing, overhearing conversations, and maybe he's stumbling upon movies or sets that he's not supposed to see, and he's starting to get real suspicious that his life is sort of pretend, and he even starts to make friends that are like, hey man, things aren't what they seem. And so what you're doing while you're watching the movie is that you are just like the audience of the TV show in the movie, and that's that you're rooting for him to figure it out. You're rooting for him to escape this domed, simulated experience. And so the movie kind of reaches its climax whenever he says, I'm done with it all. I know that this is fake. I don't care what you guys tell me. I'm going to sail away. And so he sails in a sea and then reaches the end of the dome where his boat crashes into a wall that he doesn't even see in front of him because it's camouflaged. He hits the dome and gets out and there's like a little path that he can walk on. Walks up a hidden flight of stairs and sees a door with a little tiny word exit on it. And he opens the door and the person who's sort of playing God over the loudspeaker who's the producer of the show says, wait, don't go. Nothing out there is more real than what's in here. And it's this big climactic moment where he says, no, I'm out of here. And he walks through the door and then guess what? The movie ends. <laughs> 
Hey, the movie ends because it shows the, it doesn't show Truman anymore. He walks through the door and it shows the crowd who's been cheering him, the crowd, I say the, the audience, the TV viewers are cheering him on and they're all these people in a bar and they're celebrating like their team just won the championship and everything. And finally he gets out and then it shows these two guys that are security guards that are watching and cheering on Truman and they look at each other and they just go, well, what else is on? You got a TV guide? If you're too young, you know what a TV guide is. It's what we used before there was a guide that you just push a button anyway. But it's, it's, it's interesting because you're supposed to be the viewer and that while Truman disappears from the set, he disappears from your sight as well. And so the movie ends without an epilogue because you want to know what happens next. There's a love interest that's been kicked off the show and he's close to her and you want to go see it. Does he run to her? Do they have a, a relationship? Do they get married? What happens next? But we don't get the epilogue. The movie lacks closure, but it's a great ending. What happens to him? We don't know. And I contrast that today with the book of John because in John... Hear me, hear me say this. It would have been fine if the ending were chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, which we looked at last week, because it was a climactic boom of an ending, a power chord as the credits roll. Believe that he's the Christ. End. And that would have been fine. But the author, John, doesn't end it there. The story ends there, and yet he says, here's what happens to the characters after the story was over. Because you kind of wonder. Jesus said there's this mission. He says, you're going to go and be my disciples. You're going to suffer. And then we see an epilogue in chapter 21. Because epilogues aid the story well. You contrast the Truman Show with something like Remember the Titans or The Sandlot, where at the end of the movie it says, and this character went on to do this, and this character went on to do this, right? And Benny the Jet Rodriguez was an L.A. Dodgers player, and Scott Smalls was the commentator who called him stealing home. I like movies. I'm sorry. We like epilogues because it tells us what happens next. And in chapter 21, without it, the story would lack the postscript of closure, even though it would still be great. Jesus is risen, the grand finale, a great plea from the author John. But what about the followers? John winds down with an epilogue. What happens to the characters next? And most importantly, how does the mission of Christ live on? You know, the story lives on in that Jesus' followers are called once again to follow Jesus. Not in salvation, but as they walk with him, even without him, in life. It's a story centered on life, which is what John's appeal is at the end of the passage we looked at last week, that you may have life, but this new life in Jesus that he provides doesn't begin when we die, but when we die to self. It begins when we are saved. See, the disciples' story of following Jesus, by the way, began while fishing in the Sea of Galilee, many of them, and their post-resurrection epilogue discipleship, it begins again, guess where? While fishing in the Sea of Galilee. A unique breakfast is what I've kind of titled behind me. Breakfast reminders, we'll get there in a moment. Let's look at John 21. As Jesus sort of calls them again while they're fishing. It says in chapter 21, starting in verse 1, it says, After this, again, that's after Jesus appeared to them in the locked room. Now a second time, Thomas makes the proclamation, My Lord and my God. It says, Now, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others, and two others of the disciples were there. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, 
cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. As I said a moment ago, post-resurrection discipleship is the theme of this chapter, this epilogue in the book of John. We're looking at sort of the first half this week, and we'll look at the second half. We'll, just, we'll say it's part one and part two next week. There's been so much heightened drama that has led us to this point. The story has reached its climax, as I said just a moment ago. You've had the cross, the burial, the empty tomb. There's mystery, frustration, what happened to the body, sadness. But then resurrection being made clear, revelation to the disciples, to Mary, to John and Peter, joy, Thomas, who then says, my Lord and my God, right after the height of his doubt, doubt he makes the height of revelation and the height of confession. He sees the nail wounds and the spear wound. And the conclusion is clear, my Lord and my God, he says in verses 28 and 29, where John then says in, in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20 that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, listen, where does the story go from there? I mean, it's, it's up here, right? How do you wind down and present an epilogue after the story goes up here? Where does it go from there? It goes fishing. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's kind of funny. It just kind of just trails off to fishing. And it feels like that, a, a trickle off. I believe John intends to instruct us, though, as post-resurrection disciples, as we look at these post-resurrection disciples, of what it means to follow Jesus on this side of the empty tomb. We see some relatable things here. And so as Jesus, I think, is giving them some reminders in this morning where dawn is breaking, that's what I've titled the message today. It's Breakfast Reminders, or maybe more appropriately said, Morning Mercies. Right? This is kind of the theme here. Breakfast reminders, it's just my spin on it, all right? deal with it. I, just, I couldn't, couldn't rip somebody off. New Morning Mercies, Paul David Tripp. I went with breakfast reminders, all right? I've got a couple of things with you guys that I want to leave with you, and I do think that these are really, really strong gospel reminders. The first one is this, to trust Christ in weakness and need. To trust Christ in weakness and in need. You see, like countless times before, Jesus reminds his disciples that in some ways nothing has changed, and yet, as he's still their master, he's still their friend, that creation still submits to its creator, things are a little bit different this time, and yet they're the same. He reminds them that when they are weak, he is strong, which is something that he's shown them many times before, starting in verse 1. Let's go there. So after this, Jesus revealed, revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. We'll pause for a second there. This verse is just there sort of as an introduction verse. Like I said, we were in a different place at a different time well, last week and the week before. And so what John does here is say, now we're going in a different direction. So after that happened, he sets a stage. 
That's a new revelation at the Sea of Galilee. It says the Sea of Tiberias. It's just a different name for the Sea of Galilee. Throw that map up there, if you will. You'll see this uh, behind me. So you see Galilee is the big orange section in the middle there. Uh, the Sea of Galilee, you may be able to see it, is on the eastern side of that little, well, it looks like a little county to us, right? But on the eastern side of Galilee, you see the Sea of Galilee. And I don't know if you can tell, but those black dots around it, you have some familiar names there, which we've talked about months ago when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry those three years, right? Things like Capernaum, things like uh, Bethsaida, or even where the first sign took place at Cana, which is just south. Cana and Galilee, Nazareth is just south of that. The reason I say that is to say all those amazing things about the cross and the empty tomb and the Passover, all that took place in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. You see Judea, which is the, the area right south of Galilee. Well, way down south in Jerusalem is where all those big events took place at Passion Week. But guess where the guys went after that? They went back home. They went back to their jobs. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in the passage today. While those things happened down south, after a feast week was over with, they went back home. When? Not really sure how far after those events took place, but that's not the point. The next thing that John says is that he wants us to know the way that Jesus revealed himself. He says, in this way. This is how it went down, he's saying. The third revelation of himself, which is what he says down there in verse 14. But look first at verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, <clears throat> Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, we just talked about that, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. The sons of Zebedee, by the way, would be James and John. Not James, the brother of Jesus, but James, the son of Zebedee. But John being John the apostle, later probably referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But there's several guys that are, you know, kind of in our passage here. Peter, James, John, Thomas, Nathaniel, and two other guys that for some reason John didn't mention. I, I don't know why, but they didn't get a mention there. Look at verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. This is one of those examples where uh, John is abrupt and to the point. I don't think that this is how, this is not some robotic. Peter's, they're sitting in a room. I am going fishing. We will go with you. And they went. Obviously, John is paraphrasing, but these are normal guys. And they were going about their day, and they're back home. And so Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And they say, all right, well, we're going to go with you. And so they went. And that night, it says it was an unsuccessful fishing trip where they caught nothing. Now, listen, I, this needs to be said, and that's that just to provide some, some context and some surrounding details that are important. They weren't just going to enjoy their hobby on their day off. These guys were fishermen by trade. It was their profession. In other words, even though Jesus was resurrected, they went back to work, okay? They went back to their lives, the gospel author Luke mentions that James and John were partners with Simon, Peter, in fishing prior to being called by Jesus. And so they went at night, which was preferred in ancient times, so that they could sell their fresh catch the next morning. The problem is they weren't going to be able to sell anything because they came up empty, which means they came up empty, okay? This is a bigger deal than just you and your buddies going on a weekend fishing trip and not getting a bite. It means that they had no money for the evening, which surely had to be frustrating, like so many times before, their lack or insufficiency was an opportunity, though, for Jesus to fill their lack, which is what happens next. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, so this is dawn, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now remember, they fished overnight, all night, okay, all through the night, and now day was breaking, so it's early, early morning, still dark outside, 
and they were 100 yards away, which is what John tells us in our passage here. So think you're 100 yards away from the shore, it's already dark outside, and they look, and they're not sure who this figure is that's standing on the beach beside them, 100 yards away, sort of still hazy and dark. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Let me reread that. I'm going to emphasize it in a different way. He says, children, do you have any fish? I'm going to explain why I do that in just a second. Keep going. Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. The reason I emphasize it that way, any fish, is because the literal word for any fish in the passage refers to a tidbit of something, just, just a little bit, added with a tone of expectancy of a negative answer. So what he's really saying is, guys, haven't you caught anything? There's a guy you don't know on a beach 100 yards away who's now jeering you and saying, you guys didn't catch anything? Sounds like their friend, doesn't it? I've never, uh, I'm, I'm not a fisherman, but I, I've been fishing several times. We, we used to live by a little pond when I was, uh, when I lived in Mississippi a long, long time ago before this time I lived in Mississippi. Um, but I do know, even though I don't fish a lot, some of you guys do fish a lot, and I know whether you're fishing or hunting or whatever, it's frustrating when you spend hours out there and you come back without even a bite or seeing anything after sitting in the deer stand all morning. That can be really frustrating. Now, it would be more frustrating if it was not just your hobby, but that if it was your profession, it was your livelihood. But I believe that it would be even more frustrating as if not only you didn't see anything or you get a bite, not only is it your profession and your livelihood, but also it's even more frustrating if a gentleman you do not know called out from the shore and told you, by the way, a professional, how to do your job better. Can you just imagine if I showed up at your job and said, you know, you're using the wrong tool there, brother. You know, that toilet needs a different um, whatever toilets need in there <laughs> to you as a plumber. If I showed up at your construction site and said, you know, I know that you're the home builder, but I think that you'd do better to do it this way. Or anyway, another illustration that I don't feel like coming up with at the time. My point is, after a long night, they're tired. Now, probably I would guess to say aggravated. The guys were surely frustrated in the insufficiency of their own ability to catch fish overnight, their profession. And Jesus shows up, a random guy, they don't know it's Jesus, and says, don't you guys have anything? Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. Verse 6 continues and says, so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. He says to cast it on the right side. Now, it wasn't that they hadn't cast the net on both sides of the boat all night. Surely they had already done that, but that's just the point. Is that the fish responded to the voice of this man. The aquatic life yielded to the authority of this stranger. You think they'd cast the net on both sides of the boat? Yeah. It was that this time it happened because this guy said to do it. He'd performed a miracle, this supposed stranger on land. As a result of that, verse 7 says, that disciple whom Jesus loved, who I'm going to suggest to you is most likely John, therefore said to Peter. So look, therefore said to Peter. Don't miss that word. Therefore, as a result of what had just happened, therefore said to Peter. It is the Lord, he says. The Lord, the master, the one who has authority. Now guys, hear this. It is no coincidence that they hadn't brought in fish 
for that night. It is no coincidence that they had not brought in any fish that night. God simply had a bigger plan. The disciples caught nothing that night, facing their own lack, here's why, so that the power of God could be demonstrated and their insufficiency be realized. There's a principle lying here that reaches beyond fishing. And that is that following Jesus is not in relying on your own strength, but in the, in the authority and the control of Jesus. It's not about our strength. It's about leaning on the one who has infinite strength. Listen, authority and control are not always good things. Aren't authority and control scary in the wrong hands, in the hands of a tyrant? Aren't we seeing that right now with the current war that's happening? Aren't, isn't control, supremacy, that's scary in the hands of a tyrant. But listen, authority and control are life-giving, burden-lifting in the arms of not a tyrant, but the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep that they may have life. It's the Lord. And guys, if God was willing to shed blood Please hear this. If God was willing to shed blood to supply your heaviest, most eternal need, do you not think that he will also be willing to supply your daily needs? If he was willing to die to supply your heaviest, most demanding need, will the good shepherd not also care for your every day? Will he not? Your worry, stress, anxiety, loneliness, depression, the job you lack, the fear that ensnares you. Do you not think the good shepherd who has ultimate authority and control doesn't just care for your eternity in the future? Do you think that he cares for your day-to-day -day now? And do you think that he's good? See, following Jesus means not relying on your strength, on your understanding, on your ability, on your wisdom and difficulty, but on the power, the control, the authority, and the goodness of Jesus. So Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, when Paul is met with a trial beyond his ability to overcome, asks God for aid when he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul then says in his commentary over that statement, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Boast in them. You know what that means? It means that Paul decided that he would see lack as an opportunity, not as an obstacle. How countercultural does that sound? In a world full of self-empowerment and self-sufficiency, to boast in your lack, to boast in it. 
to see lack as an opportunity, not as an obstacle. And I think that you see that that's true more than you realize, perhaps, because your seasons of greatest spiritual growth are directly tied to the moments that you have no other frame to lean on, trust in, than the solid rock. Trials and hurt and pain and suffering and stress and worry, all of these things exist because of the fall. We must state that. And we cannot overcome the fall, but they exist so that you would run to the one who already has. In eternity, no doubt, but daily. And I think a really important word of application here is that we can say we buy that all we want. We can say, I lean on him in my stress, in my anxiety, in my discouragement, in my hardship, in my lack, whatever it is. I, I say, yes, I lean on him. I need him. I, I buy that. <clears throat> but there is a clear litmus test as to whether or not we really believe we desperately need him. And you know what it is? Prayer. It's prayer. And we can say, all of this, but at the end of the day, it's lip service if we do not find ourselves on our knees. Which is an easy segue into the second breakfast reminder that I got for you today. And that is to have a desire to be with him. To have a desire to be with him. Have a desire to be with him. <clears throat> I love uh, Peter as a biblical figure this guy you know we, we've truly seen his highs and lows which i think makes him extremely relatable to us and we see this in verse seven and also in verse eight look at the rest of seven we're going to pick it up let's see uh, that disciple whom jesus loved therefore said it is the lord look at the second half of verse seven when simon peter heard that it was the lord check out what he did mr impulsive here he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, <laughs> dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. It's funny to me. Peter, as I said, is extremely impulsive. We've seen him just on a whim, just explode into anger and, and defici or defensiveness and cut a guy's ear off when he meant to kill him, I think, as the sword wasn't made for slashing, it was made for stabbing, and he, he cut a guy's ear off, a, a Roman official, by the way, so that would hold some consequences, but Jesus fixed that problem, right? He's, we've seen him run into an unclean tomb, which would have meant ceremonially he'd have to do some things to fix that, and now we see him jump into the sea while 100 yards from the shore. Hopefully, he, clearly, he can swim. It says that he was stripped for work. Um, he was naked. I'm not sure how naked. He might have been naked, naked. You know what I mean? I don't know. Um, but apparently he had no shame in that around his homies. But he was out there. He was ready to, to do some fishing. But it says here he puts on his outer garment, which when I read that the first time, I thought that was weird because it says that he didn't have clothes on. And then in order to jump into the water, he put clothes on, which is opposite of what I would think would happen. But why did this happen? I want to explain. It's what he says he put his, gar his outer garment on. It means that he wrapped it around himself. It's the verb, by the way, of what Jesus did when washing his disciples' feet. Remember it says he, he removed his cloak and then tied the towel around his waist. 
Maybe there's some, maybe John is trying to help us to see. By the way, Peter's the one that had a problem with that when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And he said, not my feet, Jesus. And so now Jesus is, or Peter is sort of doing symbolically perhaps the same thing that, that Jesus did. Maybe there's a, a hyperlink there. I'm not sure. I don't think it's that essential. But I think he probably did this because he could swim without being hindered if it was tied around his waist. But why put it on in the first place? It's because he was going to go and eat breakfast with Jesus on the shore and he didn't want to do it naked. There's nothing else to see here. Thankfully, there's nothing else to see here. That was a pun, and I didn't intend to say that, but bad jokes, sir. It's Father's Day, right? But I don't want you to miss this. Peter had spent all night fishing. Please hear this. Peter had spent all night fishing to make a buck, to get something of value. Finally, the fish are in the net, needing to be hauled in, the value, when suddenly something far more valuable captivates Peter's heart. And what is that thing? Time with his Lord. Impulsive Peter. Big mistakes, big treasures. He saw something more valuable than the money in the boat. Not yet in the boat. He saw his Lord on the beach. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> when they got out on the land, again, the boat now has come, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Such a subtle and unique detail, but I think it's a detail that's there for a reason. It says there's a charcoal fire there. I cannot help but think that this is a hyperlink once again to Peter's betrayal. Remember when, we, when Jesus was undergoing trial, Peter was asked three times, are you one of his? And he said, it's not me. We read back there at that passage in John, there was a charcoal fire where Jesus was being interrogated, interrogated and beaten. But this situation it's far different. Not the betrayal of Jesus, but the friendship of Jesus. Not betrayal, but breakfast. Fish and bread, 10 and 11. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. It compounds the miracle. These details, you know the count. They know the count, not because there's, they, they, there could be some symbolism here. There could be something we're supposed to see. I don't think so. I think that we're told that there's 153 of them because these guys are professionals and they would know the exact count of how many fish that there were. They didn't tend to sell them that morning after all. And yet the net was not torn, which I think is the key detail that we're supposed to see. And clearly John writes it down to say that it's a miracle, a miracle that the net is not torn. It's an anomaly. But the purpose of this meeting was friendship and fellowship. Look at verses 12 through 14. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Guys, this had to be a surreal moment for the disciples. Nothing had changed, and yet everything had changed. They're doing with Jesus what, the, with Jesus what they had surely done countless of times before, only this time they knew <clears throat> that he was certainly their friend Jesus, but he had revealed himself as so much more. The disciples are hit with a wave of normalcy on this side, while undoubtedly having it collide on this side with a sense of amazement that Jesus is even alive again, still carrying, by the way, the scars of his murder. <clears throat> I 
I know that we've uh, <clears throat> put people into space, right? We have put people into space, and yet, in a way, I still cannot believe that. We, on several occasions, have shot rockets into the sky with people attached to them. We can say we know that happened, and don't, don't say, well, actually, Stanley Kubrick and uh, the Soviet Union, and it could be, no, listen, we've shot people into space with rockets attached to people, or actually the people attached to rockets, right? Does that sound crazy to anybody else? That's actually happened. And that hits me with a wave of, yeah, we, we put people on the moon, we've shot people into space, while at the same time hitting me with a wave of, that's nuts, Right? And we could talk about lots of examples of that where we've come to think, yeah, this is normal, this has happened, and yet I can't believe that this has actually happened. This is sort of the sentiment that I see clashing in the passage that we're reading today. They know it's true, but when they stop and think about it, surely it blows their mind. They know it's Jesus, but in a way, they still can't believe it. How could they? Their friend and teacher was born of a virgin. Excuse me? Their friend and teacher was born of a virgin. That's nuts. He lived sinlessly. That's crazy. He never was selfish, never mean, never dishonest, never lusted, never disobeyed. The list goes on and on. Their friend that they're eating with, he died. Excuse me? He died brutally with witnesses surrounding them, not just as a national or state criminal, but as the substitutionary sacrifice of all of mankind, a cosmic criminal. He died with witnesses. And as a result of that, the most amazing part that actually happened is that you and I can go from eternally separated to eternally saved. We can go from eternally perishing to finally purchased. What? Guys, the gospel is amazing. And we can convince ourselves that it's routine and status quo and we've talked about it a lot and so it's just the way that it is. It's amazing that Jesus died to redeem us from sin from which we could never escape so that we could have life in eternity with the Father. That's amazing. And us trying to minimize it doesn't change reality. That God loves us. You see, Jesus is the Christ, which is the point of the whole book, so what does the Christ want with simple little fishermen? He wants to have breakfast. That's weird. The greatest, the king, the most noble, the most amazing would find the low and not want them kissing his feet. He wants that at breakfast. You see, Jesus' desire from his disciples then and now does not begin, don't, don't miss this, it doesn't begin with mission, it doesn't begin with works and with efforts, it doesn't begin with a great commission. Instead, their discipleship rather begins with a heart longing to sit and be intimate with their Jesus. The incredulousness of the moment is trumped by a nostalgic reminder that Jesus was still their friend. 
And I think that this is what Jesus wants of us as well. He's our Lord, but he's our brother. He's our Savior, but he's our friend. And church, I think if we really knew who it was, who it is, who wants to be with us, we would be blown away and want to be with him. If we really knew, the God who longs to hear your voice in prayer is the God who parts seas. The God who longs to see you plugged into the church is the God who distributed in one little room to a dozen men his spirit who now indwells millions upon millions across the globe while empires who tried to extinguish his cause themselves became extinguished. That God just wants to be with you. The God who wants your song of praise is the God who said, let there be, and there were giant galactic fireballs, canyons, mountains, snowflakes, cells, atoms, and DNA that makes you look completely different than millions and billions and billions and billions of others who were also created in the image of God. The God capable of that just wants to be with you. The God who wants you to lay down your time is the God who laid down his life for you. The God who wants you to walk with him is the God who walked out of a grave for you. Guys, the angels called Jesus pre-birth Emmanuel for a reason. God with us. Jesus came, yes, to redeem, yes, to save, yes, to be glorified. He came to be with us. He came because we were no longer with him. And church, I think once again, if we really knew who it is who wants to be with us, have intimacy, fellowship with us, with you, you would be blown away and want to be with him. That God loves you and will never make you earn or let you lose his love for you. Meet with him. Meet with him. Be his friend. Be in love with him. Before God wants your works, he wants you. We make being a Christian about external check marks, and there's a place for obedience. Don't miss that. But listen, we make being a Christian about external check marks. Go to church, be baptized, read your Bible, pray. Don't use bad words, don't get drunk, don't do drugs, don't gossip, don't be a jerk, be a good Christian. But notice, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, those fruit of the Spirit are internal virtues before they are external behaviors. Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Before those are external actions, a checklist, they start in here, church. In other words, Jesus must be at work in your heart before he can be at work in your life. He's got to be at work in there before he can be at work out there. And Jesus must be near you, near your heart, before he can be at work in your heart. We really complicate this thing, y'all, when in reality, we are absolutely wasting our time in this faith if we are trying to do it apart from being near the one who gave it to us.
pray. The battle against sin does not begin with your hands and feet or with your voice. The battle against sin begins on your knees, attached to the only power source that you have against it. The battle to love your neighbor, it starts talking to the one who empowers your love. And maybe a good practice is one that I've taken to heart. Not that I've perfected it, goodness no, but one way that we can implement this is schedule your prayer time. Pray when you begin your day. Before you go out as a worker, as a friend, as a peer, as a student, before you go and do life, begin your day talking to the one who gives it to you. Pray when you are about to go home for the day. As you're on your car ride home and you got to go be the family man, the family woman, you got to go and care for the kids, put into bed. When tempers are now flaring because everybody's tired, when you're on that mission field, before you even get there, talk to the one who can empower you in it. And pray when you end your day. And for me, an end of the day prayer must be a gospel prayer because I will have failed miserably that day. But God's embrace of me is not loosened by my affection for him. It is always strengthened by his affection for me, which was proven 2,000 years ago at Calvary. I'll just reiterate it. Before Jesus wants you to go before him, he wants you to stop and be with him. To desire to be with him will lead you to desire to go and be for him. But I want to close with one thing. And that's an understanding that we can talk about God our Father. We could talk about the cross and redemption and talk about his love for us. How he wants to be with us in eternity and how it's held for us. But if you've never come to a point in your life where you've confessed your sin before a holy God, that you've looked to the work of Jesus and said, I can't gain my way, but Jesus, I believe that you did. The Bible says if you confess with your sin, or confess with your mouth that you are a sinner and believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you will be saved. And we can overcomplicate that. But nowhere can I find in Scripture that you need to clean up your act before you can be His. But I see the opposite. You may be His and allow Him to clean up your act. So today, stop running. Ask Him to be your Father.